from Brown Cow Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds, the news podcast, on this very, very, very hot day in Montana. It's episode 18, and I thought we should look back on some of your favorite and my favorite episode interviews. Today we'll be listening back to my episode with Missy Dore from episode 5. She's a 5th grade teacher in Bozeman, Montana. And we are also going to be listening to episode 8 with Amanda, a baker in Montana. Also, Ms. Deborah, a teacher in San Francisco area from episode 10. And one more, episode 16, Tracy Batiste. She's a New York Times best-selling author. Also, you'll learn who has won the Listener Challenge and... Is Virginia still in first place for the Geographical Location Challenge? You'll find out. I'm Ezra Graham, the the guy who is sweating like crazy. And now, without further ado, episode 18 of News Nerds. The results are in for the Listener Challenge we just picked. You can see a video of us Picking the lucky winner, if you are a subscriber, there will be a video in the latest email announcing this week's episode of News Nerds. Be sure to watch that. And I want to tell you that the lucky winner of this week's listener challenge is Shannon in California. She is, uh, ironically, in California because the correct answer to the listener challenge was cobra, the venomous animal. And take the first and last letters, and that's California. We've also gotten some other answers that I will uh, accept. This is one of my favorites. This comes from longtime champion Mary. She won the listener challenge a few weeks back. So she said king cobra, and then the Latin name, I believe, uh, I'm saying this wrong, I know it, but this is this is how I read it. Ophiophagus uh, Hannah. Again, Ophiophagus Hannah. I am not saying that right, but that is the, the, the other name for King Cobra. And put those the first and last letter of that together, and she got Ohio. So I accepted that too. Other, other ones I accepted, but the main answer that I got from everybody was Cobra. So, congratulations, Shannon. And here is your prize. You will get the paperback version of the Jumbies book by Tracy Batiste. Listen to the rest of this episode and hear my interview with Tracy Batiste. Also also on episode 16 of News Nerd, she's also written two more books in the Jumbie series and a Minecraft New York Times best-selling book, which I also highly recommend. Um, I am going to read that very soon. I've heard many good things about that book. So you also get the News Nerds Certificate of Completion, some News Nerds gifts, stickers, and other News Nerds prizes. Congratulations. We'll have a new listener challenge very soon. And now 
let's go to my interview with Amanda, originally heard in episode 8. She is a baker in Montana. Amanda joins us from Bozeman. Welcome. Thank you, Ezra. Could you tell us a little bit about your background first? Well, I spent the first 15 years of my career in Australia and the UK, where I worked uh, in special events and marketing for the IT industry. And then we moved to California and I worked in TV advertising. And both of these jobs involved so much travel. And then we moved to Montana and I decided I am going to change my life. And what I did was I went to the Napa Valley in California and I spent a year at the Culinary Institute of America where I studied baking and pastry. So that's kind of my background. I grew up in Australia, but then moved to England in my early 20s. And so it's just that's where I am. Now we're here. Could you tell our listeners about your baking in the United States? Okay, well, when I finished at the Culinary Institute of America, I headed back to a small town in Montana called Ennis. And I built a commercial bakery on my property there. I I didn't really want to open a shop seven days a week and that sort of thing. So I worked, made a commercial bakery and I worked um, with local restaurants and caterers and ranchers. And I baked breads, cakes, um, all sorts of desserts for them. And I also did wedding cakes, which is quite exciting in Montana because you are carrying a three tier cake in the car down a ranch road. and you've got to try and keep everything glued together. So I didn't do wedding cakes that often, but I still did do a few of them. Um, And then I got together with a bunch of like-minded locals, and we were trying to figure out how we could actually get some really good food and more variety into the Ennis marketplace. Because, you know, Ennis is a small country town, and we don't have access to all the markets and things that we have in Bozeman. And so we found a bunch of people, some were gardeners, um, some were jam makers, and eventually we ended up setting up a farmer's market. And that was loads of fun. And we saw, I sold only organic baked goods. And then I also actually made lunches for fishing guides. So I did that as well. And when I was at the market, I had a particular cake called a bass cake which was so popular, people would line up before the market had even opened, waiting for a slice of this cake. And um, so that was my most popular cake. Then we decided after a few years to move to Bozeman and I met some really nice people and I share their commercial kitchen. And a sample of my cake was taken to Zantera Now, these guys run all the food in the Yellowstone Park. So they tasted the cake and they said, oh, wow, we want to serve this in our restaurants in Yellowstone. 
And now that's all I do. And I bake about 600 bass cakes for the park every year. <laughs> it's a lot of bass cakes. How has your baking been affected because of the coronavirus? Well, kind of catastrophic, actually, <laughs> um, because they, it doesn't look like any of the sit-down restaurants in the park are actually going to open this year. So they'll do to-go stuff, but my cake kind of needs to be sliced up and presented nicely. So um, then my husband is sneaking under the counter. Stuart, go upstairs. Good grief, sorry. You'll have to edit that out, Ez. Um, and then, so I'm really not baking much at all. Uh, obviously I have a few orders for some friends or I've got orders from people that have eaten the bass cake before and they're in California or Connecticut or somewhere. And so I've been shipping them bass cakes, but that's really it. It's going to be a quiet old summer. Do you have a favorite thing that has happened to you because of the coronavirus or while you are stuck at home? Actually, I'm not stuck at home. I love being at home. I don't consider it stuck. I actually quite like it. And I've also, because we're in Montana, we've been able to hike the hills. And I, my girlfriend has, I think, 100 acres or something. So I've been hiking up on her property with the dogs. And so it's just really nice and peaceful. And I love the fact that I haven't been running around from appointment to appointment or meeting people all the time and running here and running there. So it's just been nice and slow. And one of the things we've been doing, obviously, is Zoom. But um, I, we've actually started Zooming with friends all over the world. And it's been really, really nice to catch up and see friends in Australia that we don't normally see unless we actually go to Australia. And um, we've been doing this thing on a Friday night. So it's Friday night here and it's Saturday lunchtime in Australia. And these guys own racehorses. So um, the race, the racing is closed in Australia, but the horses are allowed to race. You're not allowed to go. So they've been watching from home. So our meeting, our Zoom meeting has a treasurer and he places all the bets on the horses for us. And then they turn their computer around and we watch the horse races on the TV and all cheer for our own horses and everything. So it's been kind of fun to do things like that, that you know, we would never do. So I'm not, I mean, COVID is absolutely hideous, but we are not having a bad time here. Could you tell us about your travels around the world? Whoa, that's a big, big question. We have been traveling since our early 20s. Um, my husband and I traveled, first of all, we went, we had a year where we just traveled through Europe and Asia, kind of backpacking, but I'm not really good with the backpack. I had to go and stay in sort of a hotel. <laughs> I should have stayed in hostels and things, but I really just, I needed air conditioning. It was so hot in Asia, but yeah, we stayed, we bombed around. We, we ate the most incredible food. We met amazing people and then when we moved to England, we were lucky enough that we could travel all through Europe whenever. So when you wanted to go skiing, you went to Switzerland, you went to France, or you went somewhere like that. And because both our jobs took us to Europe, I would call, my husband would call me and say, I'm at the most amazing little village in Germany. 
fly over. And because it's so close, it's like an hour and a half. You just jump on a plane and go over. And so we got to experience so much more than if we'd just been living in Australia, which would take forever to get anywhere. And you know, we've been to all sorts of places. We've been to Tokyo. Um, we've been to Japan. We've been to Kyoto, um, Bali, all sorts of places, really. But um, some of we really go to places for food. And now that we've sort of done all the sort of touristy traveling, we've seen all the kind of things we wanted to see. Now we go and visit friends and because we've got friends all over the world and we have, you know, we go to birthdays or we go like this weekend, we should have been in Monaco at the Formula One Grand Prix with friends who love car racing. Um, that's all been canceled. So that's kind of a bummer. But um, yeah, we've just sort of traveled a lot of places. I don't know that there's anything that out that is really outstanding. I mean, there's funny things that happened everywhere. But I mean, like for example, my girlfriend and I went to Tokyo and we felt like these giant Americans, these great big messy Americans with suitcases everywhere. And these, all these Japanese were so tidy, so beautifully groomed. And they had their one tiny little suitcase. And we're like this junk show of Americans <laughs> on the wrong train, going the wrong way trying to <laughs> figure out the food and everything but it was just it, experiences like that are just fun so just to get around and see everything is fantastic that reminds me of when my dad drove on the sidewalk in spain after the coronavirus do you think that your travels will be greatly affected or will they be mostly the same I don't, well, personally, I don't think we will ever travel like we used to. We've already canceled three trips this year. Um, and I don't know that we're going to travel in 2021. Um, we just have to see how healthy the world is. Um, probably 2022. And, you know, I think we're going to limit it dramatically and do more things local. I mean, there's a lot of Montana that we can see. We've got a trailer so we can go camping and, I know it'd be fun to just hang out in this area. What, before we go, what, what is coming up for you and your family that might be greatly altered like your travels because of COVID-19? Well, my husband lost his job, which was <laughs> a bit of a surprise. Um, but I mean, he was thinking of retiring soon anyway, but it would have been nice to have retired when you felt like it instead of now. So we're kind of being a little more careful with money um, and, um, I, I really just think we're going to do a lot more home stuff. Thank you for joining us today, Amanda. It was great having you on today's show. Thanks, Ezra. Lovely to see you. Let's go to my interview with Tracy Batiste. She is a New York Times bestselling author. And she's written the Jumbie series and Minecraft The Crash. This interview was originally heard on episode 16 of News Moons. Tracy Batiste is a children's book author. And she's written um, the Jumbie series and Minecraft. The Crash, and she's also written nonfiction books for 
uh, children, and she joins us now. Welcome. Hi, Ezra. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me what you do to start off with? Sure. So I mostly write books for children. I also sometimes write stories for adults. I also teach. I teach at Leslie University in their little residency and program. And I do some editorial work. That means that when people have manuscripts, they have stories that they might need a little bit of help with, I will read those stories and give them critical notes. So when you were a kid, did you want to be a writer or uh, did you um, decide that you wanted to be a writer later on in life? I actually decided that I wanted to be a writer when I was about three years old. And I had this huge book of Grimm's fairy tales that my mom gave me, and I wanted to have my name on the cover of a book because I really loved books, and I thought that would be a fun thing to do. But of course, as I grew up, I changed the thing that I wanted to do a lot. So I wanted, at some point, I wanted to be a fashion designer. And at some point, I wanted to be a ballerina, and so I dance a lot. You can actually see, uh, well, you won't be able to see, but Ezra is seeing in my office right now that I have some point shoes behind me in my, in my, um, on my bookshelf. And, uh, and then I actually became a, a school teacher. So I taught pre-K, K, I taught second grade, I taught fifth and sixth grade for a number of years, and then I worked in educational publishing. So those textbooks that you guys do, I was an editor for, for those textbooks before I moved on to writing full-time. So you lived in Trinidad until you were 15. Can you tell me about your life in Trinidad? Yeah, growing up in Trinidad was great. It's the southernmost island in the Caribbean, and it's the, the island is a twin island nation. It's Trinidad and Tobago. Tobago is the smaller sister island. And, you know, we went to the beach every weekend. We you know, spent a lot of time driving around the country with our cousins. Uh, it was uh, like a huge extended family. We were outside all the time, climbing trees, running around in the dirt. I really, really enjoyed it. Even though I grew up mostly in the city, in San Fernando, which is the southern capital in Trinidad, it's still kind of rural there. There's you know, chickens wake you up in the morning. You know, like all the neighbors have chickens, so you you hear the the chickens calling to each other like throughout the neighborhood um, in the morning and. I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed my life growing up in Trinidad. And so I send my kids back as often as I can so that they can experience some of that themselves. So you've written three Jumbies books. Um, what made you write the first Jumbie book that started this three book Jumbie series? The first book was because my kids didn't know anything about jumpies. So they grew up here in the United States and they didn't have the kind of experience that I had in Trinidad growing up where people kind of talked about jumpies like they could literally be anybody and could be anywhere. And because they didn't have that experience, they didn't know really what the folklore was. And so I decided that I would write a story to introduce Jumbies to my kids. And so that 
was the reason I started writing the first one. And honestly, it was really only supposed to be one book. I didn't really think anybody would be that interested in it. I thought mostly people from Trinidad would be interested. And uh, I, I did not expect it to have the kind of wide readership that it eventually did. So it was a surprise to me and it was a surprise to my publishers when the book became as popular as it did. And that's when we started adding more books to the series. Yeah, I'm rereading it right now. It's great. Um, uh, thanks. Yeah, on the website, you, uh, on your website, you said that you thought your grandma's um, neighbor was a Jumbi. So tell, explain about Jumbies, um, the different kinds of Jumbies that you grew up with, and how can you defend yourself from them? Okay, well, this is quite a long discussion um, because there are a lot of different types of jumbies and all of them have different physical characteristics and all of them have different things that you can do to defend yourself against them. That is, if you can defend yourself against them because some of them, there's nothing you can do really. And so I would say to go on my website, there is a jumbies field guide on the website that will tell you about that. But my grandmother's neighbor, Miss Evelyn, I was certain she was a suquia. And a suquia is a type of jumbi that is like a vampire. So they will come in through the tiny cracks in the door or in the window or in the floorboards or wherever, squeeze their way in, and then they do what vampires do, they suck your blood. So I would wake up in the morning whenever I stayed over at my grandmother's house and I would have like these little bites all over my skin and I would be sure that it was Miss Evelyn who came um, and she was a sukuya and she sucked my blood. My brother, of course, said it was just mosquitoes, but I mean, what does he know? <laughs> um, the way that you prevent yourself from being uh, injured by a sukuya in particular is you leave a huge amount of rice, like you pour out a big bag of rice in front of your front door, because a sukuya is like a lot of very typical vampires. They are obsessed with counting. You probably, and your your listeners probably know a vampire called Count on Count from Sesame Street, and he's obsessed with counting, right? And so he is a very typical vampire where he cannot help himself but count, and sukuya are very much like that. So if you have a huge bag of rice in front of your front door, the sukuya will stop and she will count every grain. And if you put a huge amount out there, it'll take her all night. And of course, you know, when the sun comes up, uh, vampires really can't be out in their regular form at night. So the sukuya will go back home um, once the sun comes up and that's how you protect yourself. Can you tell me about your characters in the Jumbi series and specifically Corinne, um, because she is a very uh, brave girl? Yeah, Corinne is not like me at all. So a lot of people think that I'm writing myself and I write Corinne and I am not. Uh, I think when I was thinking about Corinne, I was really thinking about my mom. My mom is somebody who can go toe to toe with anybody. You know, she like doesn't back down and she's very independent. And that's how Corinne is in the book. I really am more like Drew, uh, Corinne's best friend in the story. She is a little bit more shy. She understands what's right and what's wrong. And she can summon up the courage to go help her friends. But 
you know, it, it takes a little while for her to summon up that courage. So I, I'm much more like Drew. Corinne is very uh, strong-willed and she can take charge of any and everything. She's in charge of the house. She's in charge of her dad, even when he's at home and he's not on the water fishing. Uh, she takes care of them. She takes care of herself. She knows who she is. She's super confident. Uh, she was a really fun character to write. Before we go into your Minecraft book, I want to ask you, how did you come up with the idea for the second and third book? With the third one, it was happening while there were hurricanes. And I didn't, my editor asked me for a third book. We, you, you know, we had done the first one, we had done the second one. The second one hadn't come out yet. It was maybe about a month away from the second one coming out. And she said, you know, I, I think we should do a third one. And I said, well, you know, I put all of my ideas into the second one. I, I didn't leave anything for a possible sequel. When I wrote the first one, I thought maybe there might be a sequel. And so I left a few things out. But with the second one, I put everything in, not leaving any room. So I didn't know what I could possibly do for the third one. But we were watching the news because there were a lot of hurricanes that year. And there was a news report. We were watching the Weather Channel and they put up like one of those fact things on, on the screen and it said Huracan is the Carib god of storms. And in the Caribbean, the Carib people are the, are the indigenous people who lived in the Caribbean. And I grew up with people who were of Carib descent, and I grew up learning about people who were the Caribs when growing up, they were in my textbooks. So I did not remember that in particular, but I, I went and I looked it up, and it, it was in one of my old textbooks, and I, I kept one of the old ones. And there it was, and I thought, okay, great, so this is what I'm going to go with for, for the third book. I'm going to bring in this carrot god. And that's where the whole idea for the third book came from, literally from the Weather Channel. So what is your writing process? How do you get your ideas? How do you come up with your characters? And then how do you put it into a book? Well, you just heard one of the ways that I come up with an idea for a book. Ideas really come from any and everywhere. Ideas are kind of sticky. They, you have one idea, and it seems interesting, and then you might see something or hear something that feels like it goes with that original idea, and they glom together. And then you see something else, and you, or hear something else, and it gloms onto those first two. And then the ideas sort of grow bigger and bigger, and not always symmetrically, right? It's sort of like a big blobby thing that's sort of like rolling around in your head, and it doesn't really have a shape or a form, but eventually, all of those teeny tiny ideas together start making you think about a character or a place or a thing that might happen. And that's where the idea for a larger story might start. So once I get to that place where I have a bunch of tiny ideas that have now stuck together, that's when I start thinking about, oh, is this a story? Could this be an interesting story? And then I start writing down like little notes someplace. So I don't start writing right away. 
I will put down little notes here and there, and eventually I might have something that seems like, yeah, I think I wanna try to write this story. And often it's not like I know the beginning of the story or the end of the story. It's often that I have an idea of things that happen to the character somewhere in the story. And so I will start with whatever idea I have and I will write that down. And then um, after I've written enough of those down, then I can say, okay, so this is the beginning of the story and this is the end of the story and then let's go. And then I start writing, I, I start rewriting from the beginning. So a lot of my writing happens in my head to start and then it moves to notebooks. And then from there, once I have a bigger idea of what the story could be, that's when I move to the computer and I start writing the whole thing. Will there ever be a Jumbies movie? I would love for there to be a Jumbies movie, but I do not know if there will be one. There has been interest, but I don't know if that will happen or not. So you've also written the, a book called Minecraft The Crash. So what made you decide to transition from Jumbies to Minecraft? Well, I have a lot of really wide-ranging ideas. So I don't just write fiction, I also write nonfiction. So I'm interested in a lot of different kinds of things. So moving from one type of story to another is not really that unusual for me. But with Minecraft in particular, the people from Mojang actually asked me directly to write a Minecraft story. They really liked the Jumbies series and they wanted an adventure story set in the Minecraft world. So they called and asked me if I would be interested in it. And I at first said no, because I didn't really know anything about playing Minecraft. My kids and my husband play Minecraft but I never did. Uh, uh, video games make me nauseated, so I don't play video games. So it was not a game that I knew well enough that I thought I could do it. And that night at dinner, we were all sitting around the table and I mentioned that Mojang called and said, and asked me if I would do a Minecraft story and I said no. And my son, who was 10 at the time, oh my gosh, his jaw dropped, he was, he was so upset. He's like, no, you have to call them back. You have to tell them, yes, I will help you. Don't worry about it. I will explain everything. I will show you everything. I'll read all your notes and pages. I will help you. And so I did uh, tell them the next day that I would do it. And my son, true to his word, he was really helpful to me as I was plotting the book. And when I started actually writing the story, he would come home from school every day and read two chapters. So I, I had a, it was a, kind of a tight schedule, so I would write two chapters a day. So he would come home from school and I would set out the two chapters that I'd written that day on the dining table with his snack. And he would sit there and eat his snack and read my two chapters and give me notes. And that's how we got through the whole thing. So he got credit on the book as a consultant because I, I certainly could not have done it without him. Wow. So um, now we are in a worldwide pandemic. So has the COVID-19 pandemic inspired you or your writing? Not really. <laughs> it has not been inspirational. I did do recently a, a review of another writer 
her name is Zadie Smith, who wrote a book of essays about the pandemic. It's called Intimations, and it's for adults. And the Washington Post asked me to do a review. And that really was the only writing that I did that was specific to the pandemic, because I wrote a review of the book. Obviously, I was talking about the book, but I was also talking about my own reactions to the pandemic. So that's the only thing I've done. For the most part, I think the pandemic has been very disruptive to my normal process because everyone has been home. My husband has been working from home. Both of my children have been home in school. And I am used to having the house completely to myself. Well, me and the dog. But I'm, I'm kind of used to being alone to be able to work and there's a different kind of energy in the house when everyone's in the house. And it's been a little bit disruptive to my normal process. So I have been able to work, but definitely not as much as I was working pre-pandemic. And as a matter of fact, in the last maybe two months or so, I have almost stopped writing entirely because the pandemic itself as well as the social upheaval that's been going on around the country has been really quite stressful. And so I really kind of had to shut down for a little while. So I, I really only just maybe a couple of weeks ago started thinking about a new story. Are you writing anything at the moment or thinking about any new ideas that could be put into books? Yeah, so I just really started thinking about a new story. It's actually not that new. It's an idea that I had several years ago. And it's about a boy who's genetically engineered. And I thought, when I started writing it, I had a very different idea for how this particular story could work. It was working a little bit more as a fairy tale in the original version that I started maybe about four years ago. But in the version that I'm doing now or that I'm thinking about now, it's much more scientific. And it's because I also happen to really, really love science. I like physics in particular, and I quite enjoy in particular quantum physics. And so I started thinking about injecting a story with a lot more uh, scientific base rather than a fairy tale base. So that's what I'm thinking about now. And the truth is, I don't know if this will become a story that is viable. I don't know if it will work out to be a good story. Uh, I might also completely change it. That happens too sometimes when I'm right at the beginning of a story, I can't really know what it'll be. So it may not turn out to be exactly what I think it is right now. So we'll see. I just have, you know, I have my, my notebook and I'm writing in it uh, almost every day, maybe just a few lines or maybe a page or two. But, you know, we'll see. It's, uh, it's kind of fun to start working on something brand new and something that is completely different than anything I've done before. Thank you so much. Tracy Batiste has written The Jumbies and two other books in the series, as well as Minecraft, The Crash, nonfiction books, and other books for adults. Thank you so much for being here.
Thank you, Ezra. Thanks for having me. And now let's go to my interview with Missy Dore. She is a fifth grade teacher in Bozeman, Montana. This was originally heard on episode five of News Notes. teacher from Montana joins us today. Welcome. Thank you. So could you tell us a little bit about your teaching in your in Montana? Sure. Uh, I think I've been teaching in Montana. This is I think my 13th year and before that I had uh, 12 or 13 years uh, in Hawaii and also in uh, my first year in California. But in Montana I've taught for two of those years second grade and the rest of the time in fifth grade. Um, and how has the coronavirus affected your job teaching? It's uh, affected it completely. Uh, and that is because we are uh, separated physically from our students. And that um, physical separation is really tough, I think, on everybody, especially in the elementary world. Teachers really um, strive to make these um, relationships and emotional connections with their students. And we really work hard to make a inclusive and uh, learning friendly environment uh, in our classrooms. And when we can't be around the students, I really notice how much I use my, all my senses around kids to, to understand how to help them and to assess uh, their learning. And it's really small things sometimes. It might be just the way a student, you know, student eye contact is or their body language. Uh, maybe the way they um, take a little breath in or something like that that can clue me into how they're feeling. And I believe that uh, the affective part of a kid is really the most kind of important to address before the effective or the learning part. So it's, it's been a huge change. Uh, what do you miss most about normal life? Uh, well, at school, I miss the kids. I miss their energy and I miss their faces and their smiles and their stories. And I miss the community and uh, the excitement that comes with it. Their spontaneity. Uh, I just, one of the things I really love about teaching is that it is never boring. Every day is different. And uh, even with the same students, you know, everybody, there's just a lot of random factors going into the day. So I think I, I really miss that, um, that spontaneity and just the connection with kids. Do you know anyone who is being affected very closely because of the coronavirus? Well, I, not the disease itself medically, but um, my son, he's 16, he had a job at MSU at Rendezvous 
Hall is a dishwasher and now he doesn't have a job because they closed down. And my daughter's boyfriend, he worked at a bakery and now he doesn't have a job. So um, the economic impacts, yes, I've had uh, some, we've had some fallout from that, but of course we count ourselves as very lucky. Um, I know you to take small things from life and make them fun and enjoyable. Have you found any ways to make being stuck at home more enjoyable? Uh, well, I have to say that we are eating very well because uh, we're cooking. I'm not cooking that much, but other people are, and I appreciate it. So we're uh, cooking and doing some baking. And uh, I've had my um, gym that I've gone to. I have to work out at home. So there's been some, uh, I, I remember I made a kind of fun little uh, uh, alteration of dumbbells because my son will sometimes work out with me. I only had one pair. So I made uh, some dumbbells with empty peanut jars, plastic, and quarters. And I think they were about five pounds each, and I used those for a workout. So stuff like that. And lots of people are doing creative, interesting things at home. I've asked many people this question. Have you seen or heard anything like the coronavirus pandemic um, in your lifetime? Oh, no. No, absolutely not. Uh, the only thing that might come close would be 9-11 as far as the um, just impact and the shock. However, 9-11 was an event, you know, it was terrible and devastating and far-reaching, but it did mostly seem within our country. It had global effects, but really mostly our country and um, and it was quick, it was over with, and then we had to deal with the aftermath. Whereas COVID-19 is truly a global pandemic and um, it is not clear when this is actually gonna end. And I have a feeling, and this was true of 9-11, like life will always be different. And that is true of 9-11. We, we have had differences in the way we travel and things like that. And, um, but this is so big and, um, no, I've never experienced anything like this. And uh, I know this is a really very big time in history. It's a very huge event. And it, it, it's, uh, it's what we live now. But um, I guess I'm really grateful where I live and these opportunities like coming on News Nerds. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Missy Dore, a teacher from Montana. It's time for the Geographical Location Challenge. I have some news. Virginia is still in first place. That is great, Virginia. You are breaking records here because we have not managed to have a state that has stayed up there for more than two weeks, I would say. And Virginia has been up there for, what, four weeks? We also have two runners up for second place, Connecticut, I mean, California, and uh, Ohio. Ohio was in first place before Virginia snuck up there and took first place f right from Ohio's hands. We also have two runners up for third place, New Mexico and Connecticut.
which have been in third place for a very long time. If you want to get your state in first place, tell your friends, co-workers, and anybody else in your state about News Nerds, and maybe we'll see your state jump up to first place just like Virginia did. And that's it for the Geographical Location Challenge. Let's now go to my interview with Deborah in California. Uh, she is a teacher in California, and she is the next interview in this four-interview series. Onward into my interview with Deborah. She is a teacher in the San Francisco area. She told us how she is coping in the coronavirus pandemic. This was originally heard on episode 10 of News Nerds. Cowboys! Her first grade students know her as Ms. Deborah, and she's a painter. Welcome. Thank you, Ezra. It's nice to be here. To start off with, could you tell our listeners about yourself and what you like to do? I like to do a lot of things, but I do love spending my days with children and being with them. I love teaching. I love art. I love plays. I have written a few plays that I've actually acted out in a theater, a solo performance, and I just love the people in my life. Could you tell me about your world travels that you tell about on your website? Um, well, my outstanding trips of my life was like five weeks in Indonesia. I traveled with about five people and a British biologist through the whole archipelago. You know, we stayed with the orangutans and we were with the Komodo dragons and on the island of Sumba. We met the people wherever we went. So that was an outstanding trip. I learned to scuba dive on that trip. I've lived in Italy and I've taken art classes near Bologna in Ravenna. And I learned how to do the ancient art of mosaics, taking stones and smashing them and gluing them into compositions. That was a favorite trip. Another one was just renting an apartment in Paris with a friend and hanging out in Paris for a few weeks. So I guess, you know, I've traveled a lot and I don't travel that much anymore, but those are outstanding. Those were great trips. I like staying in one place for a long time. Can you tell me about your painting? Well, I go to a lumber yard and I buy wood, two feet. They cut it for me, two feet by two feet squares. I love animals. And so I study an animal before I paint it and then I send it good energy, and I sort of feel like uh, humans are messing up their environment and habitats. So I sort of call my paintings apologies to nature. I kind of send good energy to the animals that I'm painting because I feel that they don't understand what's happening to their environment, you know, and they're kind of innocent. So uh, I keep painting animals, and I enjoy it. It's kind of a meditation for me when I paint. Could you tell me uh, what a normal day in your first grade classroom would look like? Okay. Usually, I, that's where I play my guitar and we sing songs. And I sing songs that hopefully they can make up parts to. So everything is very participatory. There's usually a math puzzle. And then some days we just 
do creative writing stories. So they might start a story and then get together in small groups and share their ideas with each other so they can give each other more ideas. We call that clarifying questions. And then they go back and do more writing after clarifying questions. That could be recess. And then after recess, there's activity centers, like learning centers. We have a great day. I really miss it. And then there's five different centers and they visit one a day. And there's usually kind of an intensive learning task at each center. And I change them. There's a math center, a reading center, writing, you know, that kind of thing, science. Then they go to lunch. And after lunch, it's usually quiet reading, maybe art or dance or music or library. And usually I try to have like a learning game at the end of the day using something we learned during the day. And either we play hangman or, or sometimes we just do something fun so we all go home laughing. Being a teacher in California, how was your personal experience with remote learning in the coronavirus pandemic? <laughs> That's the question of the year, Ezra. Um, most of us had a really hard time because it was so sudden. Like in two weeks, we had to be up and running. When none of us had ever done it before. It was really hard. And it was hard also for the kids. Like they didn't fully, at first grade, they didn't fully understand suddenly we weren't together anymore. But after a few weeks, I kind of found my groove and learned how to have fun with them. So I'd say like the last five weeks of it, we actually had a good time again. But the screen can never compare to an alive group of people sitting together. So there's a real loss there, but I guess it was the best we could do to stay connected. How will the upcoming school year look like and will there be safety measures put in place in the classroom. You're asking such thoughtful questions. Um, that's the question everybody's wondering. Uh, I've been participating in town halls. They're asking teachers what do they think is needed to feel safe, especially with little kids. We don't think they can handle the six feet apart every day, you know, and the cost it would take to have nurses and people on staff to manage them they get sick a lot anyway, and they cough a lot, and there has to be an abundance of Purell and an abundance of masks. It's going to be labor-intensive for teachers to keep taking temperature while they're teaching. Some of the models for next year are you have half the class for half a day. Then there's a break, and the whole room gets cleaned somehow. And then there's the other half a group. So in, in San Francisco, first grade caps off at 22 kids. So I would have 11 in the morning, take a break, have 11 in the afternoon. That's one model where there's less kids together, but there's so many theories on how to do this that no one knows yet. My concern is there's not enough money in the budget to make sure everybody's supported. But I hope, I hope to see the kids in the fall. I miss them. Our school is particularly close. You know, we love the families and uh, you know, you're asking the million dollar question, Ezra, we'll probably know in another month. What has been your favorite thing to do in the coronavirus pandemic while you were in <laughs> San Francisco? Okay. My favorite thing during that, that's really hard because I've been working a lot. Well, I was, I was happy to paint and not think. You know, it was a, a lot of learning curve for all of the uh, architecture of the software, you know, learning all these new environments. So it was nice to paint. There's a square up near where I go for coffee I've seen my friends every day. It's a real community. 
So we all go and sit six feet apart and visit. So hanging out with friends, I just, you know, it's important to just be with people that you love to spend time with. And also Golden Gate Park, I don't know if you've ever been there. Were you in Golden Gate Park? So uh, I meet other teachers in Stowe Lake and we uh, love walking around Stowe and looking at all the bird life. So we do, I do that quite a bit. But it's slowing down and just getting a chance to breathe after all that work, which is really nice. So getting quiet. What will be changed in your community after the coronavirus pandemic? Because as you were just saying, there, it's so uncertain and many things could change. I think, uh, I wonder how, in my mind, I wonder how long it will take for uh, people to learn to be playful with each other again. Like even children understand the seriousness of this. We may be forever changed in that we're going to have different ways of communicating, I think, and being affectionate with each other. Just in friendship and stuff, you know, we shake hands or fist bump or chest bump and have fun together. I think that we're going to be more aware, and I think even the kids will be. So I think there'll be different ways of socializing and different ways of playing games. I mean, we have to invent new games. I mean, obviously, I can't play volley balloon in the classroom anymore. So I, I look forward to seeing how creative we can be so that we can still have fun together. You know, I don't know what that is because there's a phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. Once we're there, I think we'll figure it out. I hope to. Before we go, what is it like being stuck in a big city while the coronavirus hit the United States? I don't feel stuck. Okay, this is, I've always lived in a city. I was in New York before this. It's just my life. But definitely I'm indoors more. So when I go outside, I really notice that I'm loving look at the sky. Like when it's particularly blue, it feels amazing. So I look at the sky and the trees and the flowers all the time, like more than I ever have. So I feel like I'm more aware of the beauty of nature, which I love anyway. But I just feel like because I'm indoors more, I look into flowers more. You know, I take in the colors, I walk by them, and I stop and I take pictures of them. So I feel like that's the hard part of the city, you know, but we're in spring, so the, the color is amazing right now. So I, when I go out, that's what I look for when I take my walks and I see it. You know, San Francisco is a beautiful town. It is. Thank you for joining us today, Miss Deborah. It's been my pleasure, Ezra. I've been so looking forward to meeting you and it's an honor to be on News Nerds. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds, where we look back on some of my favorite and your favorite episode interviews of News Nerds. Congratulations to the lucky Listener Challenge winner and to Virginia, which is still in first place, now with 10% of all News Nerds listeners. Who the heck is in Virginia? Email me if you're in Virginia. Again, my email is a newsnerdshost at gmail.com or you can email us on the website newsnerdshost.wixsite.com slash podcast click contact us 
on the website and you will be directed to the contact us page. Also, we are now on Google Podcasts. Uh, Google just recently picked up our podcast, so now you can go to Google and News Nerds will be on Google Podcasts. Thank you so much to all of those great interviewees that we had on today. That would be Missy Door, Amanda, uh, New York Times bestselling author Tracy Batiste, and Miss Deborah in San Francisco. Thank you to all of those people who were on previous episodes of News Nerds, and I hope to see you listening in next week. I'm Ezra Graham, and we'll be back next week.